Coming up on Security Now, it's my last time filling in for Leo Laporte. Uh, we got a new way to think about fingerprint security. We've got some good news about IE6, but Steve Gibson has come up with a way to virtually eliminate the need for a password to securely log into websites and in the internet. You gotta watch this episode next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 424, recorded October 2nd, 2013. Squirrel! This episode of Security Now is brought to you by OmniLert. OmniLert's mass notification platform allows you to instantly send text messages, emails, and more to your entire organization. For a two-week free trial and 20% off your first year of service, visit OmniLert.com slash twit and use the offer code SECURITYNOW. Hey, everybody, it's time for Security Now. I'm Tom Merritt. Uh, the, sadly for me, the last week that I'll be filling in for the vacationing Leo Laporte. And we have got an episode for you. Steve Gibson, the man from GRC.com, the man who may have just come up away, with a way to pretty much free us from passwords, uh, joins us now. Steve, I'm really excited about today's topic. Hey, Tom, great to be with you again. Well, this was you know, supposed to be in our alternating topical and question and answer podcast, this was supposed to be a Q&A because we, of course, talked about fingerprint biometrics extensively last week. But the way the timing all came together with my getting to a position where I had enough worked out and documented of this idea that I've been teasing our listeners with now for, I don't know, five or six weeks when it, it just hit me. In, during breakfast one morning, <laughs> I was sipping coffee and I just, just was there. And I thought, wait a minute, does that work? And then I thought about it some more and <laughs> the coffee got cold. And uh, so I got more coffee because, you know, you need that. Well, yeah. And, uh, and then and then I was I was working on the 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 tail end of weirdness of the the new spinwrite code for dealing directly with hardware controllers on motherboards and there were a couple people in the GRC news group we have a um grc.spinwrite.dev which is where the development work goes on and that gets that gets fired up about every decade <laughs> or so when it's time to do a new spinwrite and so there's been you know frantic participation in that news group and a couple people had these just weird oddball old but you know but they had them controllers that were just behaving weirdly most people would run all the test code and everything was fine but anyway i wanted to to really wrestle this thing to the ground because i have people who are willing to test my code and i don't want to let them go so for a couple of weeks i you know my main focus was that while Pretty much, you know, like every shower, every time I was driving, every, I mean, every other time when I couldn't be working on Spinrite, I was thinking, okay, let me let me test this again. I don't know what if this, da, 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 da. and 
it just kept looking like I actually had an idea. I, as I mentioned, it happened that I had one of my uh, infrequent marathon phone conversations with Mark Thompson of Analog X, who's a technical wizard and, and good friend. And so since he was on the phone, this was on my mind, and I completely trust him, I shared it with him. And he got it to his credit instantly. Actually, it's not that complicated. I mean, No, you know, that's the beauty of it, yeah. You got it too. Because um, I shared this with you yesterday when I had the documentation finally ready so that I could, you know, had had something that conveyed it clearly. And um, anyway, so finally about, uh, I guess maybe two weeks it's been, maybe 10 days when all, I mean, I finally said, okay, this phase of SpinRight work is done. Of course, this is an interruption, of course, to the work I'm doing on SpinRight, but it's everybody felt that it was important enough to suspend SpinRight just to get this published. Uh, it's, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I mean, it's not something I own except as being the father of it. But, I mean, it's, re, you know, replacing usernames and passwords is bigger than me. It's like this should just be done. If it's saving everybody... the Internet from itself, essentially, <laughs> yeah. Right. So my hope is that, you know, that I can be involved enough to to work out other details. One thing we need is interoperability so that if this thing happens and it's just hard to see why it won't. It's such a low friction solution. Anyway, I realize I'm sort of stepping on my own uh, uh, story here, but but my my point is I just want to sort of say here this is uh, I did just this morning create a news group at GRC, grc.sqrl, because that's the name of this thing, pronounced squirrel, S-Q-R-L, uh, where I'm sure there will be uh, huge, interesting, fabulous discussions because we've got a whole bunch of really smart people, a lot of crypto people, and just, you know, this thing's the kind of thing we need to be have uh, pounded on for a while. So anyway, we didn't have much news of the week. Um, so, uh, I guess it all works out. And what I think, what we may do is because I know that questions are piling up is maybe when Leo gets back next week, maybe we'll, we'll make up for having skipped some Q and A's by doing a couple in a row to, based on how many questions people have even about today's podcast. Sounds good. Well, we're going to get to that, uh, the little bit of news that we have, a little bit of fingerprint stuff, some IE6 stuff. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into the, uh, to the squirrels, if you will. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about that. But let's thank our sponsor real quick before we do that. Seven and a half million people in over 15,000 organizations have already found that OmniLert is the perfect solution to critical communication needs. And I'm talking about critical communication during important situations, life-saving type situations, emergencies, uh, rescue type situations. OmniLert's cloud-based platform lets managers distribute simultaneous text messages, phone calls, email, desktop alerts, all kinds of stuff. OmniLert can even update web pages, uh, social media, digital signs, and countless other devices and services. Hospitals and fire departments use OmniLert to replace one-way pagers, delivering critical information and summoning first responders. Those, those pagers are bulky. I've used one as a, as, a, uh, as a search and rescue person before, and they're, they're not ideal. Universities and colleges use OmniLert to report campus crimes and notify students in case of emergency. K-12 through schools use the service for everything from automated attendance calls to reporting lockdowns and notifying parents about things like head lice all the way to snow days. 
sports teams, community groups, and your company. Companies, both large and small, can use it to notify employees about everything from server downtime to traffic conditions. That's what we're using it at Twit for. Uh, we were using it the other day to let Sarah and Lane know that the 101 was closed down. It can be administered from any desktop, smartphone, or tablet. You don't have to install any software. People just get it in their normal routes, their text messages, their emails. Peace of mind, too. You got 2048, 2048-bit SSL EV. Uh, you can import users easily. You can even let users opt in by text message. You don't have to get upset. You don't have to get stressed out. When the time comes, because you're going to be stressed up out enough when something bad happens, plan those scenarios ahead of time. That way, when the time comes, you can deliver information with just a click and make sure everybody knows what they need to know. Their customers include folks like the American Red Clark Cross, UNICEF, DuPont. Uh, I mean, the, it crosses all the, the whole spectrum. Phillips, Mazda, Cal Poly, even Petaluma High School Baseball uses it. Over 98% of Omnilure customers renew their service each year. They've got hassle-free customer support, and prices start as low as $2 per user per month on the basic plan. Experience Omnilure's award-winning critical communication services for your organization. For a two-week risk-free trial and 20% off your first year of service, visit Omnilert.com. That's O-M-N-I-L-E-R-T. Dot com slash twit, omnialert.com slash twit, and use the offer code security now. We thank Omnialert for their support of security now. We're using it at twit. It's a good service. I can, I can tell you that. All right, let's get into the security news. Uh, starting talking a little bit about uh, fingerprints as, what, well, the usernames or passwords. That's what the story is about. Well, yeah, actually, a number of people brought this to my attention. I'm not sure how it got as much coverage as it did, but I got a bunch of tweets incoming saying, hey, Steve, have you seen this? Some guy named Dustin Kirkland did a blog posting, and really, the title of the posting says it all. But And it's really, it's an interesting posting that's worthy of some discussion. And the title of his blog posting was, Fingerprints are usernames, not passwords. And I and I just thought that was an interesting position, and it certainly has some merit to it. Sure. His argument is, you know, we 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 talked about touch ID and, and fingerprint biometrics at, at at length last week, and and the fact that, as we know. They are spoofable, specifically the Apple extra high resolution reader, which was which required that the spoof be even higher resolution so that, you know, so that they, you know, if the fingerprint reader saw pixels, it would say, it would say, okay, this people's fingers don't have a finger. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, so you need to, you need to raise the resolution of the image that you're creating the finger from to a substantially higher resolution than the that, than the resolution of the of the the image capture scanner. So you know they did that, and then they were able to say, okay, look, we're still able to spoof fingers even at this higher resolution. And and then of course the the other arguments are that many people have against using biometrics is that they're not changeable, whereas you can change your password if it gets out of your control if if you're using it at a website and the website's database gets breached you know famously how many people have received email or has anyone not received email saying oh my god you must change all your passwords immediately because you know we just lost control of them so the problem is if you use a biometric and the website has that 
you well, you can't change your fingerprints. You can't change your iris print and so forth. So, so what I liked about Dustin's proposition is that a fingerprint is a name for you, is like an alias, and that you know, I mean, you, your name doesn't change. So your eyeballs don't, your fingers don't. So, so I just I thought that properly couched the sort of the a, a statement of where biometrics deserves to be. So, you know, yes, and actually this this speaks to the notion that that was raised by several people commenting on Apple's Touch ID, and that is it ought to be one factor of two. That is, sure. yes, use your finger to unlock your phone. That's the great that's a perfect first step. But for if you're then going to do something critical, and you know, and maybe that's enough for casual use of the phone but if you're going to do something critical then still need a password don't solely rely on the fingerprint as complete verification of of who the user is so i mean it's anyway, not I just ex- thought- Go ahead. Uh, yeah yeah it's, it's interesting i it's not exactly the same as a username obviously someone can more easily imitate your username than they can imitate your fingerprint although both are right. possible you, it is you it's can- a lie lies somewhere on a spectrum between yeah right you know, and yes. I just thought of this just now. You can change your fingerprint, and I don't mean burning off your fingers or anything like crazy like that. But you've got ten fingers. You just can only change it ten times, and then you're done. Yes, it's a it's a it's a limited amount of of iterations there. Um, yes, but yeah, I think it is much more useful to think about it like a username. That's a smart post from Dustin. Well, yeah, and and I I did see people. I mean, there's been obviously a lot of discussion following the whole Touch ID bringing this topic of biometrics and fingerprints back to the fore again. So people said, well, don't use the obvious finger. Don't use the thumb of your right hand or whatever you're expected to use. You know, use the pinky on your left hand and maybe don't let everyone know that that's what you're doing. So that when, you know, if you're in a situation where the authorities are saying, okay, we need you to unlock your phone for us, you know, you say, oh, okay. And without hesitation, you use the thumb of your right hand. And then it doesn't work. You go, huh? Well, you know, clean it off, wipe it, lick it, do whatever you do, and then like try it again. And as we know, after what is it, five misfires, the system locks. Yeah. And so, you know, you could easily say, oh, shoot, I forgot I'm supposed to be my left thumb. Well, okay, you know, do that a couple of times and you're pretty much down the line. So I, I would uh, use the clear service to, to get through the line at SFO. Uh, when I fly to set from San Francisco these days, because I live in LA now, and uh, they they use a fingerprint to identify you along with the card, uh, so it's something you have and something else you have, I guess. Uh, not the right way to do two factor, but anyway, they, that's how they identify you. It didn't work for me this this weekend when I was flying back from Twit. Thumb three times, and they're like, "Okay, try a different finger." So they had backed up all my other fingers, and I was able <laughs> to get in that way. Kind of a different biometric way of going about things. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, uh, there, I've I've run across people whose fingers just will not scan on the laptop style, you know, swipe your finger on the sensor. Uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, there, there, there was a, a friend I had at Starbucks who asked me to help her set up a, a new laptop. She had a Dell laptop that had, had the, the standard little strip scanner where you swipe your finger. And since I had set it up, I had registered mine and hers and... No matter what she did, she could not get it to recognize. And then I know I would do it, and it would work like work the first time for me. So it was like, okay, I don't, I don't understand what's going on yeah. there. 
All right, we have IE6 news, but I think in this case we could almost say it's good IE6 news, which is kind of Oh, rare. definitely is. Um, one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast from time to time is that the, the, you know, the orphan IE of Microsoft, Internet Explorer 6, which it, it while it was there, it was there for a long time for major you know, as a companion to major versions of Windows, and it it was it, it was for whatever reason a large, huge market share um, browser, and of course it has the 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 mixed blessing of working. And so when Microsoft did seven, and then eight, and then nine, there were a lot of people who just stayed with six. They, you know, and there may have been. There may have been clear reasons why they couldn't upgrade. There may have been, I mean, because Microsoft was changing the browser each time. So there may have been compatibility issues where, you know, the, the particular corporate infranet, wait, infranet, intranet, <laughs> intranet only ran on IE6. And so people were stuck using IE6. And of course, the problem is that that it's now so old and unsupported that new problems that occur in the newer browsers, the new ver versions of Internet Explorer, are no longer being back-patched to IE6. S yet, the problem has been, I mean, Microsoft has, like, launched campaigns to try to reduce the market share of Internet Explorer 6 because it was becoming a, a serious problem, an embarrassment for them that this old browser, they just couldn't kill it off, and that it it was had so many security problems, which kept getting found in the later browsers, which which were being fixed. Anyways, the news is that the global market share of Internet Explorer 6 has finally fallen below 5%. So, hooray! Like, hey. <laughs> yep. Standing ovation. Uh how far did, how far does it have to go before we just say okay it's 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 irrelevant because five percent still is too many in my yeah, opinion but five percent is one in twenty people so that's yeah. a lot of people still I would say one percent at that point you you consider it the if if you're down to one percent then you have to ask who when when the total percentage is that low then you start asking okay who are they and maybe they deserve to get you know, <laughs> the trouble that they're asking for right, by right. using any browser that is that far gone that only one in 100 people have it. And and I wonder, actually, if we're not seeing this reduction in IE global market share, not because people are moving to newer versions of Internet Explorer, but because they are dropping IE altogether in favor probably of Chrome number one and Firefox number two, since we know now that, you know, the, the Chrome, the Google Chrome browser market share is now the largest one in the world with Firefox in second place. So it's not that people are like, okay, I guess I'll upgrade IE6 to IE9. You know, they're probably on operating systems that can't run IE9 for one thing because they're, you know, way back on, on Windows 2000 or maybe XP. Um, but probably it's just that that IE6's share is dropping because they've switched away from Internet Explorer altogether to one of the, you know, newer and better alternative browsers. 
Geekanook is asking, uh, how many of these are behind NAT and invisible? Well, if they access the Internet, they're still visible. They still count as an instance of, in of Internet Explorer. I guess there could be people using Internet Explorer on a LAN without accessing the Internet. They're just accessing a local intranet. And those actually aren't problematic because they're not accessing the Internet. But most of them are going to be accessing both. So I think, I think most of the usages are caught up. In this right, the um, and, and every single time, as we've discussed through the technology of all how the way this works through the years, every single query that a browser makes by default contains a so-called user agent header. It, it's it, it's the metadata, which of course has gotten a bad reputation uh, post NSA. Uh, but in this case, metadata is is the stuff that is not seen through the browser window. But it's the the background management of the query and response. You know that's you know for example cookies are are metadata of of queries, um, and so so it's easy for somebody in a in a central position who is monitoring queries going over the internet, looking at for example server logs. Anyone who has a a very high volume popular web server can can log the user agent headers of all the queries coming in and look at the distribution of, of them because the user agent will say, you know, what the browser is. It'll, it'll explain, you know, it, its make and model and, and typically like a, a whole bunch of other extraneous data, like what versions of plugins it has and so forth. All right, and our uh, last bit of, uh, of news here is the new uh, BitTorrent chat client, which I, I have signed up, uh, haven't got access to it yet, but I'm looking forward to trying this thing out. Well, what really frustrates me is lack of documentation because we can't, mm -hmm. we're not, I mean, from our position, they, you know, the security now audience, all we care about is the crypto protocol. How does it work? For example, that's what I'm going to completely disclose today in in this notion I have for replacing usernames and passwords. That's all that matters. It's like, here it is. What does everybody think? Let's go. But you can't do that with BitTorrent Sync, which they have not documented, or BitTorrent Chat. And so it's like, well, okay, there it is. Uh, I can't say anything about it because, you know, I could say we hope it's good, but until they release... What they're doing, it's useless. I mean, it's just, it's nothing. So all I can say is, what I wanted to say was, to all of our listeners, in addition to BitTorrent Sync, which, yeah, there it is, and we don't know what it is, but, you know, they got, oh, it's 256 bits of this and long bits of that, but no uh, documentation other than that. It's like, like it's like you know, the, the, the people who say, oh, we've got military-grade encryption. It's like, uh, okay, but what are you doing with it? You know, everybody's right. got that, you know. So so there is now something in alpha. This is alpha sign-up, um, labs.bittorrent.com slash experiments slash bittorrent hyphen chat dot html. That'll bring you to a sign-up page, which, as you said, Tom, you have used. Uh, I'm, I'm no in, in no hurry to, but I'm glad you're doing it uh, to get the alpha test. They're at they're, so they're very early. They have something, and obviously, it's supposed to be secure chat. It's supposed to be uh, no storage of your uh, of your chats, no ability to be intercepted. I mean, you know, we were talking about. Um, 
what was it? Bit the I'm I'm blanking now. The other chat system that was loosely based on Bitcoin's protocol, but not oh, really. Right. Um, uh, I'm blanking on it too. It. Sorry. Yeah. But anyway, so the the point is, we naturally we're seeing, as we expected, post Edward Snowden and NSA revelations, we, and we're going to continue for for some time. And at some point, we'll start having good things. I mean, this might be good, but. It's useless until we know exactly how it works. Until bit, until, bit message, Sage bit got it message. in the chat room. Bit message, thank, thank you, you, Sage. Yes. Um, you know, until they tell us, you know, here's the protocol, and and then smart protocol savvy people look at it and then can say, okay. I mean, that's that's what happened with LastPass. They were completely open, Kimona. You know, I, I got. All documentation from them, a complete explanation. Even they were even able to to demonstrate that's what they were doing by creating a web page of JavaScript that was not obfuscated, that exactly duplicated the functionality. So, so that I mean, it was again complete disclosure. That's the way I was able to say I understand everything done here. I see no errors, no problems. I'm using it without hesitation. And, th- you know, there came my endorsement. In this case, I, I, no one can do that. No one can responsibly say use BitTorrent Chat or BitTorrent Sync until they tell us what they're doing. So it's good that they're doing it, but, you know, we just have to wait to f- get, yeah. get the details. And it would be one thing if they're saying we're an alpha, we're only going to give that documentation to a restricted number of people. That, that would make sense, but that's not what they've done with Sync, right? They have Sync now available. I can download it right now. But you're saying they still don't have the proper documentation. They've said they're open to disclosing it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, and I have a relationship with their PR guy, and he uh-huh. keeps sending me marketing announcements. It's like, oh, look, we've got a pretty website design now. It's like, okay, well, that's good for you. But I want the protocol. You know, really, don't call me until you got the protocol. That's what we need. So, you know, we just need that. And uh, they just can't, they can't be serious without that. We have one little bit of errata from last week's episode uh, regarding yeah, a, a, ge- a location. It, it's funny because I, as I was saying it, I knew it was wrong, but I was, I had already sort of started the sentence and I was committed. And, and, but a number of people noted in listening to the podcast over the course of the last week that the NSA is not in Langley. Because I was referring to the NSA as being in Langley, Virginia. That's where the CIA is. The NSA is in Fort Meade, Maryland. So for, you know, a little errata just for keeping the record uh, correct. I wish I would have caught that for you too, but I I missed it as well. And I should know better too. Uh, favorite tweet of the week. <laughs> this is pretty funny. This, I, I like this, this one too. This one came in yesterday. I just, I, I fact, I, I should have written down who sent it so I could give him credit. But anyway, uh, so I got, I got at sggrc. Uh, he, someone tweeted, "I hope they shut down the government cleanly, or they may need a copy of Spinrite later." Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then he said, "Take a check." <laughs> so, do you uh, uh, do you have a spin right that can can handle that platform though? It's restart the federal government. Yeah. You never, you never, you know. Hope that hope it comes back online. Uh, speaking you know, of coming back online, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, the other thing that was a that was a hoot was 
uh, and someone sent me uh, through Twitter a snapshot of his of his browser. You can, if you can bring that link up, Tom, you'll get a kick out of it. And that is that the BarackObama.com website SSL certificate expired on October first, yesterday at seven twenty eight a.m. And guess who so, they can't pay to come in and fix it? Anyway. <laughs> Exactly. So presumably, whatever it is, whatever IT system or who who knows what the structure is for renewing that certificate, but that may be sitting there for a while, not something they can they can fix. And it's funny because years back when I was talking about SSL certificate expiration, and actually I was I was more annoyed by it back then, probably because I was still using VeriSign for my certificates. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, Really, an an expiration was a painful event because it was so expensive. Now that I'm moved over to Digicert, I'm so much happier. It's like, oh, this is going to be fun to have it expire. I don't mind this at all. Um, And not that expensive was my point. Um, But, you know, so I was grousing a little bit about the whole how how ridiculous it was that you were being you were being asked to pay like seven or eight hundred dollars for bits. Um, Now. First of all, that that price has come way down, and I'm getting much more for my money thanks to thanks to using Digicert. Um, but I also really better appreciate the value in this rolling expiration system that the public key crypto system has. I mean, it is our way of solving a number of problems. If if someone lost control if a website lost control of their certificate. We know that that's a problem because that would allow others to potentially to spoof secure connections to their domain, essentially using their certificate illegitimately. But we solve that problem by informing web browsers that that certificate is bad. I mean, certificates all have a essentially a hash of their contents, which they cannot change without invalidating the certificate. So web browsers can be told from now on, never trust a website that offers this a certificate with this hash. Well, the problem is if certificates lived forever, those lists would would have to grow forever. And so thankfully, since certificates all expire every two or three years after we're sure the certificate will have expired based on its date, then the prohibition against accepting it based on its content, we're able to prune from browsers so that doesn't have to grow forever. And, you know, so there are many benefits to it. Um, So anyway, uh, BarackObama.com is uh, SSL certificate is expired as of yesterday, which I thought was, you know, sort of a bizarre event. Interesting. And all right, you know, since um, yeah, since we didn't we didn't have much news today, I was saving something for when Leo got back. Uh, but I'll just sort of share it. It's just completely okay. random. But uh, my girlfriend just got a book published, um, which is actually number six on Amazon uh, in uh, science fiction and fantasy for large print books. Um, uh, the Jenny's book is, and people have heard me talk about my girlfriend Jenny from time to time. It's uh, it's an interest. It's it's comparative religion for children. Oh, uh, wow. The title is is God real or pretend? Hmm. And 
first of all, I love the title. The, the moment she told me the title a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, that just, I just love the title. And so I'll just read from, from br- briefly for users, for our listeners who may be interested. Uh, the description that uh, is there up on Amazon says, is God real or pretend? Is the story of young Franklin, that's, by the way, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Jen has like deeply studied history and biographies, and Benjamin Franklin is one of her favorite people from from U.S. history, um, I mean, probably just any history. Uh, and so anyway, so she gave this child uh, in, the, this, uh, in, in the book, uh, Franklin's name for Ben, uh, is the story of young Franklin's engaging and enlightening journey to answer this age-old question. Franklin's grandmother, Dr. Wendy, Wendy Knowles, a professor of astronomy, first provides Franklin with the basic scientific means of determining what's real and what is not, and how science distinguishes questions it can answer and those it cannot. Franklin's mission of discovery continues as he meets a kindly professor of Greek mythology who offers a historical cultural perspective on the question. Here Franklin meets the Greek gods and their timeless myths. Once armed with these new ideas, Franklin meets with representatives of the world's five major religions, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. These knowledgeable teachers from each of the great religions charm and delight as they shine positive lights on their religion. Franklin asks probing questions while learning to appreciate and admire the diversity and beauty of these religious beliefs and traditions. Ultimately, Franklin's dynamic school report on the immensity and magnificence of the universe becomes the backdrop for thinking critically about religion and questions about God. This book is designed for anyone and everyone, young and old, religious or not, who wants to know more about these five great religions. It's the most unforgettable and exciting journey one every thoughtful child and curious adults in their life will enjoy. And I have to say from from what I've heard from Jen, the editors and people involved in the production of this who read the book were saying, wow, you got to write one of these for adults. So uh, it sounds like she did a pretty good job. Yeah, it does. That's that's a really fascinating concept for a book, too. That, that just it, sounds, I, I want to read it. Well, it's not long. It's 66 pages, large print, uh, illustrated. And it's the sort of thing that a parent might read uh, with their kids, you know, as their kids start asking questions about religion and God. It's like, well, let's, you know, here's, here, here's a context in which we can, you know, think about that and, and answer the question. I know you don't have it on the lineup. Did you watch Homeland? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I actually, I don't know if I should say this. I think I know what's going on, but I don't think Already? I'm going to say wow. it. I, okay. Yeah, I think, I think, well, actually, I love Homeland and it's just, I, I care about the characters and, and I really enjoy this first episode and the, in the, I guess it was the, I don't think it was a preview of this next week, but it was what, what, you know, what, what they're doing more now is, you know, this season on Homeland. And so you're getting snippets from various, you know, like, like through the, the future of the, of this season of the series I think that gave me a sense for what's happening. And mm-hmm. and anyway, so yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And I have to say, I've mentioned this before. I, when I discovered this series, I, I, I was talking to Leo and I said, Leo, this is not 
a series I ever watched. People kept recommending it to me. I'm talking about The Good Wife. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's the title. It just doesn't sound like something I want. I mean, I want right. Firefly and I want, you know, attacking demons from the netherworld or something. But, I, you know, not The Good Wife. Anyway, I love the show. And it also began on Sunday. And, and it was wonderful. So <laughs> it was. It was just, it just it's just really great television entertainment and of course we also have to give the good wife a chance i I would i i would i think it's really good television and you know there's a huge backlog of i don't know what maybe four five six it's been on now for many seasons but compelling characters you the characters are, are really well crafted and you care about them and it's just it's just an engaging series and of course we also wrapped up Breaking Bad, which, and I'm, everyone, I guess, I guess the the final series conclusion, which was last Sunday, got a fabulous, was very well regarded and, and well reviewed. And yeah, I record breaking for AMC. Yeah, 10 point something million viewers. Yeah. And uh, uh, they, uh, the creator said he was interviewed on Talking Bad afterwards, and he said that the first episode, I guess there was a collision with some sports event that was also being televised, and it limped in at like a million or so. So, mm. and of course, it, it grew over time. But yeah, it was great wrap up. All right. Well, we, we I I can't hold back any longer. Let's uh, let's talk about Squirrel. Okay. So, what do we want in an on in an ideal online authentication system? You know, what, what do we want to replace usernames and passwords? Um, as we've developed more maturity on the Internet, as this, the range of services has grown, I think that our interaction with the net has expanded. There are places where we, we have a, you know, a fiduciary relationship like with a bank or to some degree with Amazon. I mean, where they really do know who we are. They've, they, they've got our name and address. We've got accounts. There's, you know, there, there's, there's financial information shared or there's products being shipped to our home or whatever. So, you know, there we're not anonymous, but we want security in being known. But there's another whole aspect where we really do want anonymity. There may be places where we we really need anonymity or just places where it's not important that we be known, like, you know, making a posting to some random blog. I mean, I I know that sometimes I'll see someone's blog posting and I'll note some errors or I have that'll stimulate me to want to reply. And so I, you know, I, I, I start to reply and suddenly it's like, oh, you have to create an account. And it's like, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, then they're going to, they want my email address, then I have to send them, you know, then I'm going to get a link and I have to verify myself and they're going to want this information. And I just say, forget it. It's not worth the, you know, it's not worth the overhead of having to essentially decloak myself for this just to make a posting to someone's blog. Yeah, it's two things going on, right? You don't want to reveal your 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 true identity and it's not frictionless and you have to go through a bunch of trouble to do something you don't want to do. Or, or, yeah, or it's they, they've created a bar such that I'm just not going to bother. If like, right. if you want me to do all that, I mean, and frankly, I see that when I'm purchasing stuff, too. I mean, it, it's, it's a different case. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll go to somewhere and 
and there I'm being asked to like create an account, maybe not to purchase, but to do something. And it's like, eh, it's just not worth it. It's like, thanks anyway. And so the point is that because that's the current model for identifying people, they're missing a lot of blog postings. Other sites are missing a lot of potential long-term visitors because what they're offering just isn't compelling enough. And we also know, oh my God, now I need another password. I can't use the same password I always use because we know that's not safe. Well, in fact, I can't always use any same password. I have to have a different password for every site. So I mean, so there's like, there's so much burden now to do something where, and I, I understand they want a relationship with me, but it's like, I don't want one with them. You know, as they say, I'm just not that much into them. So, but still, they're missing something. So there is the, so there's the so first of all there's a a range of sort of depth of of identity and authentication that that internet services have a re, have reasonable expectation of and internet users vary in their willingness to disclose. Also in this day and age, we would like to be uh, arguably anonymous, that is untrackable. Um, I would like an identity that I use with Amazon and my bank not to be obviously related to one that I arbitrarily use when I'm posting something. I think the worst, entirely- the worst example of that is Facebook, right? Like log in with Facebook. Now Facebook knows everything about you on that site and that site knows everything about you on Facebook. Right. And remember also that Facebook knows that you logged in over there because yep. the, the whole OAuth, not oath, OAuth technology has the site you're logging into going over to Facebook. Facebook sees that transaction and knows that, you know, that's where you are, that, that's where you're logging in through them. So, they want yes, yeah. all kinds of, of, of networking interaction there. Um. So we'd like to ha- we'd like to break that. We'd like to have, um, you know, no obvious connection among uh, of our identity among different sites. It would also be nice in a perfect world to avoid keyboard interaction. What? Because because you know how many times? I mean, it, it would be difficult for me. I don't think I could. Most of our listeners probably couldn't log in. In a, in a library computer with, you know, put in their username and password in a library or in some sort of public access terminal. We've talked about this often. You'd be crazy. You have <laughs> no idea what right. malware is in there. Many times there have been there have been hardware keystroke loggers, little little modules, little pods stuck in the cable, in, in, in the keyboard connection going into the back of the machine, which just is logging into EEPROM, everything everyone types, and then that thing can be pulled remotely and have its contents uh, sucked down. So, you know, you'd be crazy to, like, do this in any sort of, a, of an insecure setting, to, to enter important credentials through the keyboard. Now, the other thing we'd like to have is this this notion of no shared secrets with websites. The, 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 the whole shared secret thing is a problem. For example, a password. 
our password at every website we use is a secret that we share with them. We know what it is. They know what it is. Problem is, they're proven themselves to be unable to keep our secrets. Right. Just, as I, I hear was about saying that all before, the time. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, my God, we just, you know, such and such just lost a quarter million of their user accounts, including their, now, maybe their hashed passwords. That's good, except that if they didn't do their security really correctly, and we've also seen that, you know, that, like, has my password escaped? There are sites you can go to that have already run the 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 password hashes through through high speed cracking of password lists to see if they can you know crack your password. So in general, a shared secret is a problem. Now, even in even more recent technology, is the is the Google Authenticator style approach. Um, oh, yeah. No, I use or, that for the two-factor authentication, right? I yes. got to go to my phone and get that little code. Yeah, well, and I've got the original little PayPal football here that I'm holding up in front of the camera, which you press it and it gives you a six-digit code. That's the Oath technology, which is a, in, in this case, a time-based uh, varying six digits. And the Google Authenticator is exactly that. But the reason you have a whole array of accounts is we're back to the shared secret problem. It's like, well, yeah. yes, this is a second factor. And so what that protects you from is your credentials being captured and somebody reusing them. If if you need to also know not only something you know, but something you have, meaning this other factor of authentication, obviously you're more secure. The problem is... It's a secret. That is, the way this works is your authenticator has a secret, which it shares with Google, and to, and that secret allows them both to calculate what six-digit code should be shown within this 30-second window, which changes thus every 30 seconds. So the problem is you can't safely, I mean, technically you could force other sites to use the same shared secret, then you wouldn't need a separate Google Authenticator account for every single site that you authenticate with. The problem is, once again, if they lose control of their database, then it's not just their it's not just their secret Authenticator um, data that gets leaked, but any that you shared it with. So you're back to the same you know, password problem of not being able to use the same password across all sites, which is very convenient, but we know is critically unsafe. So but there's also the waiter problem, right? Even if they're hashed and salted and secured their database, every employee that's involved in their security firm can access my password, right? Yes. It's, yes. it's there on their internal server. Yes. Very good point. And in, again, in a perfect world, it w might be nice if authentication was out of band, meaning mm -hmm. that the, if you've got a bad guy who is somehow hacked into your connection. Now, arguably, if you're, if you're in that much trouble, then maybe authentication is the least of your worries. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you've got somebody, you know, in, you know who's Fair like enough. actively able to see your connection. On the other hand, you'd still like them not to be able to get it. So... If they're, you know, if they're, if you're typing your username and password in, you might have malware on your computer, 
or you might have something, you know, you might have a corporate proxy, which is using a, uh, a certificate installed on your computer. We've talked about this often to decrypt all of your traffic in order to run it through, you know, uh, they say anti-spam and malware filters, but we also know that they're actually looking at the contents and doing keyword searches on it for acceptability and, you know, and content protection and so forth. So there again, your credentials are in the clear there. Well, it would be nice if it, if your authentication didn't go through the same channel that your main web experience was going through. And, and the other biggie post Snowden. And now that we know the extent of the NSA's involvement in our privacy is third party involvement. Mm. That's the other big problem. This, you know, the little football that I held up before, this is, this is authentication that goes to VeriSign. So, so this is not authentication of a, of a secret that I have with PayPal or with eBay. This is actually, this has a serial number that, that I registered with PayPal, but this is a service that VeriSign provides. So, so they have, they, so VeriSign is a third party involved in my authentication process. Unfortunately, we now know that it's just not safe to have third-party involvement with our identity. Many of these authentication, these like next-generation authentication systems, involve so-called federation, where they, they want to federate authentication, where you authenticate to the third party, and the third party authenticates to the website. Well, that might have sounded good last year, but that doesn't fly anymore because we now know that no organization can withstand a national security letter sent by the government saying, we want you to turn over the information you have about this user. So I would argue that third-party authentication is dead. What we need is two-party between you and the website authentication that does not rely on the services of a third party because we, we just, they're not trustworthy, unfortunately. And lastly, if we're talking about something new, it's got to be low friction. It's, I mean, it's, first of all, it can't be kind of better. It's got to be a lot better. Um, it's got to be free. So there's no, I mean, one of the reasons people have moved away from this VeriSign model and, and, and eBay and PayPal football is it is really expensive. Um, it's the reason Google's not using it, for example, they did their own, is that VeriSign gets, gets a fee for every single authentication. So first of all, the authentication instance has to be free. The apps or whatever it is you use has to be free. I mean, this is not something you could charge for. That, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but those days are, are, are gone. Also, it has to be not overly complex because it wants adoption. We want people to be able to easily create whatever this is, both on the user's side and on the server side. And, you know, we see time and time again that really complex protocols, we were talking about just the other day that, uh, in with with regard to the IPsec security in IPv6, how 
it's now believed that the NSA influenced the design by by helping to make it so complex that cryptographers were no longer able to even understand it. They they like looked at it and said, "Okay, well, I, I, we can't say this is even secure because we don't understand it." So it also it has to be simple and and easy, feasible for you know it's one people, not big teams, not organizations, just one guy who says, "I want to implement this for for them to implement," and in order to be adopted, it can't be jealous of the existing system. It has to be something which is is feasible to to have side by side running next to existing authentication as an alternative for people who would prefer to authenticate that way. And over time, if it were to succeed, it might end up, you know, being being like your first choice where it's like, oh, well, if you can't authenticate that way, then you ha- you go back to old school username and password. And of course, you always need some ultimate backup um, authentication for, you know, times when for whatever reason you can't authenticate this way. So that's, that's my laundry list of, you know, ideal online authentication. Now, what's crazy about this to me is if I were to sit down today and go, okay, what should I fix about authentication? I, I wouldn't choose no keyboard interaction. I would immediately say, well, that's just silly. Of course, we're going to need keyboard <laughs> interaction, right? Or, or shared sequence with, with websites. Like maybe we could do without shared secrets, but I'm not sure how. You've, you've gone through very meticulously and said, what would the perfect system involve here? And that's why some people are getting impatient in the chat room. They're like, just tell us how it works. But it's important to go through and, and say, all of these things need to happen because what's so impressive about Squirrel is it addresses every one of these points that you talked about. Yes, uh, that's exactly. The, what, I, what I have is that. It, what I have is what I just described. Uh, it is no linkage among websites uh, anonymous, no keyboard interaction, no shared secrets, out-of-band authentication, no third-party involvement, low friction, easy. I mean, and the other thing is easy for the user to use. Maybe that's more important than anything else. Is right. it, What is it that we, that annoys us so much is, I mean, I can't log on anymore without LastPass somewhere because it knows all my different passwords because we've all been driven all the way there. To the point where, really, it's it's just become that burdensome in order to and be last secure. pass, which doesn't solve most of these problems that you've mentioned, is too complicated right. for a lot of people. Right. Sadly. Yeah. Okay. So, what is this? How do we do what, this? What is the user experience? What does a user do to get all of this with the what I call SQRL login, Squirrel login? They're anywhere, at home, uh, at Starbucks, on a public kiosk, it really doesn't matter. Um, and the login page presents them with the regular, probably, username and login, because, I mean, that's going to be, that's probably never going to go away completely. But off to the side, next to it, is a QR code. One of those cute little square um, digital codes which we actually did a whole podcast on some time ago. I went through the exact, you know, everything about the structure and function and operation of so-called QR codes. 
And underneath it, it probably says SQRL. Although I don't know what else it could be, but you know, just to label it for people, stands for Secure QR Login. So Squirrel, Secure QR Login. So you don't have to be nuts to use Squirrel. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just testing out a be, line. I like that. You have, You'd to, have to be, be nuts, nuts not, not to, use. to use Squirrel. There you go. So all you do is you scan that QR code with your smartphone and you're logged in. Wait, that's it? That's Actually, it. I know because I read the documentation, but I still can't believe that that, I mean, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but really that's, that's all you do. You that's don't all have you to do. press a button or take a picture of your thumb or scan nope. your eyeball. Nothing. Nope. Okay, so what does it do? What's going on? So the te- even the crypto system, and, and remember that our, our listeners will remember when I was first telling Leo that I thought I had come up with something, I said, I'm tempted to call this HIPS, H-I-P-S as an acronym, which stands for Hiding in Plain Sight. Because... I mean, I almost think that it was like, okay, why hasn't anyone done this? It's just, and our, our listeners are shortly going to have the same sense. It's like, okay, wait a minute. What's wrong with this? Why, why does this work? So here's what is going on. Every time a site displays a login page to anyone, the, a, a QRL code is generated, which is contains the URL of the site's Squirrel authentication service. So maybe it's like sqrl.amazon.com or amazon.com slash sqrl, question mark, I mean, whatever. It's, it's the URL which your, your smartphone will use. So this is the website saying we want to receive Squirrel logins at this URL. And then on the end of the URL, so it's just that, it's just the, the URL, the authentication service, and then a parameter in, in the URL tail, probably question mark, and then gobbledygook, you know, what we now know as pseudo-random junk. A, 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 in crypto terms, it's a nonce, N-O-N-C-E. It's a number used once. And so that's the end. So every time... A, a page gets displayed. It's the, the server uses its random number generator, creates a new nonce, which it just offers on the page. People who don't have Squirrel ignore it. They figure out what their username and password is for this site, and maybe they can't, so they use LastPass or OnePass or MyPass or YourPass or whatever, somebody's pass, and log in that way. But... If you're squirrel enabled, you just let your phone see that. Now, it might be that the URL would actually be sqrl colon slash slash instead of https colon slash slash, maybe sqrl or maybe sqrls for secure slash slash, although the connections to the server would be secure. Um, who knows? So maybe your phone automatically recognizes a QR code with SQRL colon slash slash and just does it. Apparently there are, you know, smartphones have the ability to have, a, you know, a URL registered that way. Or maybe 
you just you tap your squirrel app and then which you've installed and let it see the code what happens so the sqrl app sees this url it takes the domain in the url and cryptographically hashes it with your master identity key there's something called the identity master key we'll, we'll talk about more but that it's a 512 bit large pseudo random key that is like that's your identity it it is universal you could have it your entire life it never needs to change you obviously want to protect it and we'll talk about all of that in a second but so the domain name cryptographically mixes and we actually use a, a, an hmac um function in order to do that a, a hashed message authentic code function which is secure to combine the domain name with this master identity key that produces a 512 bit private key as in terms of public an asymmetric key pair private and public um from that private key, the matching public key is synthesized, and the entire URL, which is the, the whole domain name and the nonce, this one-time pseudo-random thing, is cryptographically signed by the private key. So, and we've talked lots about cryptographic signatures basically you know a hash is made and then that's encrypted under the private key so we basically we do a cryptographic signature using the private key of the entire url contained in the qr code on the login page the phone sends two pieces of information to that url that is, it generates a standard web query, HTTPS web query, to the URL given, and it provides the public key, which was synthesized from the private key, and the signature. And that's it. That's it. Now, what? Now that's the key. Yes, that's it. That's all there is to it. The server receives this query coming in, which will be for a login page that it's displayed but hasn't heard anything back yet from the user. So in, come, in comes a query. The query contains a, a public key and a signature. It uses the public key to verify the signature, which is how signatures work. That tells it that whoever it was who sent this little packet has the private key that matches because only the private key can sign that URL, which is unique in every instance. And so that proves the identity of the user. The identity of the user is just their public key. That's their identity. That's, that's the token by which the website knows who's logging in. And so that, though the, the public key forms their identity token, the, the fact that the public key verifies the signature authenticates 
that 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 they are the person who actually has that identity and the, the, so this makes it proof against replay attacks and 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 various spoofing attacks because it is a url that was just generated that the website verifies and note that because the way the private key was generated was from hashing the user's master identity against the website there's a different private key per site and therefore a different public key matching per site. So the whole system is site-specific. Every time that user with that identity master key comes back to that site and scans the QR code with their phone same hash is synthesized, same private key is made, same public key is made, new signature of the new of the new URL presented this time on the login is signed and the phone makes a query back to the server to say, "Hi, log me in." And that's it. So, so if somebody were to spoof that page, they wouldn't have all the information they need. To, to to create a QR code that would actually fool your phone. Okay, so so okay, so there's there there's the basis. The, the sort of the, the underlying architecture is that we have a we synthesize a per site private key from the domain name in the URL, which doesn't change for authentication on that web server, and the user's master identity key to create a private key. The private key never leaves. You know, it's made on the fly, basically from the domain name and the user's identity. Never leaves the phone. It signs the entire URL and is also used to synthesize the public key. And those two things, the public key and the signature, are sent back. So that's, the, that's it. Now, there are still some things we need. Um, but... As far as we know, that architecture is secure. Um, there, there's some, there is some fancy crypto, uh, which I actually I explain on the SQRL pages at GRC, um, which are now up, by the way. If you go under GRC's main menu, under Research Recent, the top item under Research and then Recent is the, the introduction page to this SQRL system. Um, and that is we need to prevent the phone itself from being abused. Now what we've done is we, we, have, we have securely bound the user's identity and authentication to their smartphone. Um, now we need to keep it from being hacked. We need to keep it from being, I mean, their authentication from being abused. Um, and so for that, we need good, strong local authentication. That is, that they need somehow to prove that they're the person holding the phone. Um, you know, mom and dad don't want Junior to go logging into their banking site and getting up to mischief behind their backs or, or doing anything else. I mean, in general, people don't want um, anyone else to be able to authenticate as themselves by using their phone. Yeah, so, what if someone takes my phone, steals my phone, all that, the, all those questions. 
Yeah, and, and and even like I mean, you know, I see people handing other people their phone. Oh, you need to make yeah, a yeah. phone call? Fine. Or I mean, you know, people are generally sort of casual with their with their with the security of their phone. This is now there's something we really need to protect. And unfortunately, today phones don't do that. Phones, I mean, we even saw the the much heralded touch ID lasted less than a week. It was a couple days before the Chaos Computer Club in Germany had, you know, come up with a bypass. I mean, arguably with, you know, in all perfect conditions. Um, but, you know, still, the phone isn't protecting you from from that kind of abuse. And if you loaned your phone to someone, if someone needed to make a phone call or let me check a web page or something, well, you would unlock it for them and then they're holding your phone. Right. So it is the still the case. Yeah. Right. It is still the case that the best means for an individual to authenticate themselves is a password. It is something only they know. It is a so secret. So we still need one password. Right. And Single. we need it. We need it not because the system needs it to be secure. The crypto appears to be bulletproof. We, we, we need it just to control access, access control to this system. Now, now I talked about no third-party involvement, which, which I explained as an essential necessity in this day and age. Note that, however... The, and, the, and what we've just described, what, what, what the squirrel system is, is a one-to-one -one authentication. No third-party involvement. You're simply saying to a website, hi, this is my token. And notice that this solves the problem of, you know, identifying yourself anonymously to some blogging site. You go to a blogging site and, and you say, hey, I want to I post a comment. Up comes they, you know, the log into the site and a squirrel code next to it. You say, oh, but, you know, snap that with your phone. And the site says, oh, okay, fine. Welcome back. May never know who you are, but it now has a, a fixed identity token to identify you. You can then, maybe you want to assign yourself a handle by which you are known for conversations there. That you can do. The point is no one can ever impersonate you. And you can come back three years later and the site will say, ah, welcome back. Just using this and nothing more. But the fact that there's no third party means the individual user is responsible for managing their identity. You could, you know, if there were a third party involved, if there was some big brother-ish organization and, for example, you lost your phone and you had Squirrel installed there, well, you would want it disabled. So you could you could contact this third party and say, oh my goodness, my phone's lost. Uh, you know, deactivate my authentication that's associated with the phone and they could do that for you. There is no do that for you here in this system. Right, that's the flip side here, right? We don't want anyone else involved. Right. So, so how do we turn that off? So, okay, so a couple ways. Um, so... So the system provides very strong local password protection. Um, the, there are, there's, there's the obvious user interface protection, meaning you try five times 
and the you the user interface says, uh, you know, you don't you're not seeming like yourself <laughs> today or at all. So so we can easily have user interface password lockout, which just after five tries it says, sorry, um, you're gonna have to reestablish your identity some other way. And we we this the system provides for that. The the other the other type of attack is where Something malware or a hacker or the government or someone somehow manages to get access to your phone's memory in an unencrypted state. We know, for example, that iPhones have long encrypted their memory under their user's password. You need to use that. You need to unlock the phone in order to decrypt the memory on the fly and so forth. But while apps are running, while the phone is unlocked, presumably that's available. So we, so we need protection underneath the user interface where if someone got a hold of the, the, the meat of the application, the application's secrets, whatever those are, without the user interface able to block access, we still need the system to be secure against that. So, what, so that's one aspect of password use. And I'll come back to how we, in, in detail, protect that in a second. Because there's a second a aspect that is related. And that is the other thing we want. Essentially, we have a smartphone with this 512-bit pseudo-random key that was made once and is potentially our online identity for the rest of our life. If we manage it correctly, it, it's huge enough and unique and secure enough. It never needs to change. Now, so is that, that a private or a public key? That, well, that, that, is the, that is the secret key, which mm -hmm. is mixed with the domain name to produce site-specific private keys. So, so it, is, it is not a key that, that ever goes any further than that secure hash function, but the point is, we don't want to lose it, no matter what happens. I mean, if the phone went through a, a trash compactor, uh, you know, I mean, or just the phone died and completely yeah. dead, you know, we absolutely, we need our identity. So that says we need to be able to export our, that key, that super secret, lifelong master key in some safe fashion. Well, and say you're Leo and you've got 27 phones um, and you'd like to be, you know, and, and you're now using Squirrel to authenticate yourself to all the sites you use. And, you know, you've got phone du jour that arrived during the podcast. So you need to be able to also transport this key between devices and between it and a safety deposit box, essentially. You, you know, I mean, you want it somehow to be stored, storable securely. So the system provides the ability to export this super secret master key as a QR code. So the user can say, I want to display on the screen and my identity master key. Once it's up, then another phone can simply snap a picture of it in order to import your super secret master identity into it. 
However, in order to in order to verify the password that goes along with that, we need to provide in the super secret master identity QR version of your key some password authentication information. And if we put password authentication information in there, then that exposes it itself to attack, meaning that if some guy, some bad guy got a hold of it, then then there is an encrypted, your, your encrypted master identity key plus enough information to verify your password. Because if you, a year from now, import that key into a new phone, you've got to provide the password. And if you transport that key, you know, clone it to another phone, you've got to provide the password. Well, that means that that, that little rectangular QR code has to be able to verify your password. And if it can verify your password, then that means it's potentially subject to a brute force attack, meaning that there's all the information there it contains to tell an attacker all of the passwords they're guessing are wrong and to finally, ultimately find the right one. So how do we prevent that? We prevent that by making it ridiculously hard to check a password. We have technology now. We've talked about the S-crypt password-based key derivation function, PBKDF, S-crypt. S-crypt was designed by the guy who did the TarSnap system to be a memory-hard password-based key derivation function. And I think if we may have done a whole podcast on this because I remember talking about the way this generates a a huge array of pseudo-random data and then where where every item in the array is, is modulus the size of the array so that it is essentially a pointer back into the another item in the array. And so... The idea is that you you iterate through this, jumping through this array, and in each location, that location tells you where to go next. So you go there in the array, and that location tells you where to go next. The point is, by doing this, there is no way to do this in, in, in the amount of memory that a field programmable gate array or a GPU has. You, you could say, we want a megabyte. And while there may be a megabyte in the system... There isn't a megabyte in the GPU's caching size memory or in a field programmable gate array cell region. So this prevents acceleration by GPUs and FPGA technology. So we we use S-Crypt technology to create a 60-second processing burden for the production of an exported QR code. If you tell your phone, I want you to show me my super secret master key for whatever reason, because you want to email it, because you want to print it to make a paper copy, which all users would be advised to do, to stick in a safety deposit or to stick in the, you know, in somewhere safe. It takes 
It's deliberately is calibrated to take 60 seconds. It'll show you a, a countdown actually as a percentage from 100 because different phones will have different amounts of processing power. So it won't always be 60 seconds. For example, when you're importing that into a different phone or a later phone, but it'll sit there for one minute, basically deeply in essentially doing the equivalent of deeply encrypting your your super secret lifetime long master key for for an entire minute of your phone's maximum processing capability and then it will show it to you what that means is that what it's showing you requires the same amount of processing in order to be decrypted for a single guess. So once you export this, um, or for, for example, say that you snapped it because you're Leo and you want to clone it to a second phone, you then have to put in the, the, mat, the same password you had on the source phone. You enter that into the destination phone and wait. It's going to go through this. It's got to perform the same operation as burdensome for a single attempt at, at the password. So if you use a strong password, it, it is impossible to guess this thing, to do a brute force attack where you're talking a processing burden of a minute per single guess. I mean, if you, you really don't want to even mistype your own password because you're going to have to wait another minute. But my point is that exporting and importing these codes is done so infrequently and we want so much security around them that it makes sense to to do a state-of-the-art GPU, FPGA busting, um, memory-hard process so that it takes a minute. And what that means is, obviously, you want to keep this a secret. We're not saying you want to tattoo this on yourself. No, you want to keep this, you want to, You want to keep this a secret. You want to, you know, print it out and stick it at the bottom of some drawer somewhere. But the point is... Any the way the system works, any and every exportation of that information is encrypted that deeply. It is a sixty seconds of serious processing for a single attempt at seeing whether the password you used is correct. So, like in the worst case, if it got loose, well, you're probably okay because you know just you just can't perform. The, 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 you know, we, we talk we, we talk about, you know, hundreds of millions of hashes per second. Well, now we're talking about one guess per minute. And so, yes, you still want to use a good password. You'd like it to be, if you'll pardon the choice of terms, squirrely. You'd, <laughs> like a squirrely. You'd like a squirrely password. And I'm going to propose that any dis, any keyboard that displays the password prompt for importing or, or for defining a password doesn't make you use shifts in order to get to funny characters, but mm. lays them out there so that you're encouraged to use a password that, that's got all kinds of, you know, upper and lower and special characters and so forth. So there just won't be on anybody's password list. And in oh, that that'd case, be a great Android feature when you can put in a custom keyboard like that for the app right. that, that handles this. That's a great idea. Right. Um, so, Okay, so obviously you don't want a 60-second delay every time you use this on your phone. 
And so the idea is that whole 60-second process is only for the performing the performing this super deep encryption of your master identity key when it's going to be displayed for whatever reason to be to be put up on the display to be copied to somebody else's phone or to be printed out for long-term archiving and safekeeping. Um, now, how often do you think that that would need to be done? Not very often, it doesn't seem no, like. No, I would think like five times. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, like almost never. So, I mean, and if people wanted even more, we could, I've just made up a minute because that seems like a ridiculously slow rate at which any password can be guessed. And there's no way known to do this in parallel where you need a megabyte of memory, you know, statically available to this thing while it's running. So extremely acceleration resistant. On the UI side, when when Squirrel says, um, when, for example, you want access to the application's settings, or when you want to authenticate, you need to give it that password. And there, I, I propose that you're asked to wait for a second. It's 1001, 1002. That, that is still a, a substantial burden for any sort of local attack on a strong password, um, yet it's also short enough that it's not, you know, going to frustrate you. And the, the, last, the last part of this that I haven't mentioned is that you do need to verify that the, the squirrel code domain that you're logging into, that is the domain in the squirrel code, is the one you're logging into. So the other step here is you would, you, you, you'd see a page that wants your identity. And so you snap it with your phone. Your phone needs to, to show you the domain that it, the domain name, www.amazon.com or you know facebook.com whatever that you that that you're going to authenticate to and get your permission because the one attack which um some smart guys that I shared this with over the weekend came up with is that I call it the evil domain attack you could be logging in to an evil website um and behind your back it could go and get a login page, for example, from for Facebook. Sure. And it shows you the Facebook squirrel code that it got from Facebook. It's just if, taking Facebook and redisplaying it. So, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Basically, it's a type of phishing attack. Yeah. And so you don't want to blindly authenticate without verifying that it's you're authenticating the domain you think you are. And so the message would just it would just come up and say you are about to provide your credentials for this domain and then it would be not in a little not in a little dialogue but my my intention is if you know as large a, a print as as will fit on the screen it shows you and so you so you just get in the habit of making sure that where you're about the, the basically the credentials you're about to provide are for the site you expect. Because if you, if, if you didn't do that, if you were at evilwebsite.com and it popped up and, and it, was, it was showing you the squirrel code 
for facebook.com you would be you would be sending your credentials to facebook but basically you'd be authenticating the web session that evil website had had started that it would like you'd be authenticating that that login that evil website was doing behind your back and They'd so you'd be writing give, in on your back so to speak right you yes you would give it access to your to uh, you you'd be, basically be giving it um, it would be allowing it to impersonate you to Facebook. So notice now that for, so so we can completely prevent that just by making sure that we're providing the credentials to the site we think we are. But notice even in that case, it doesn't get anything about us. It doesn't know who we are, doesn't get our ID, doesn't get um, even the signature. That all went to Facebook. All that happened is that it was spontaneously logged in. So I mean it's not it's not a good thing, but um, it's still a a limited impersonation for that session, which we can completely block just by saying, "Are you you know these are the site's credentials you're about to share?" And if you realize, wait a minute, I'm not at Facebook, I'm at Evil Website. It's like no, I, I'm you know th- this is a squirrely squirrel code. Why does EvilWebsite.com want my squirrel? <laughs> Stay away from exactly. my squirrel. Yeah. Um. Uh, and that's the whole system. I mean, that's it. We've got so, we've got lots of questions uh, from people, and I think you've I think you've touched on on most of them. Uh, one of the ones that I, I'm I'm not sure we covered uh, directly was what if I want to have two people using the same device? I've got two people that use uh, my phone. Is that possible? Yes. yes. Um, so there are a couple variations. First of all, I would propose that the an application, a, an SQRL app, would have the notion of a user. And so your phone might just have you as the user. But there's absolutely nothing prevent, nothing to prevent, for example, so say for convenience, you and your wife each, have, or your spouse, <laughs> to be yeah. neutral, you right. and your spouse each have a smartphone. You each create your own identity in your own squirrel apps on your smartphone. And then you want to install that identity in each other's phone. So the idea is you create an an additional user, and we'll use that term carefully, a user, um, so that now the SQRL app has like the current user. It's either, you know, it's either me or, or my spouse. And so there, so you're, there's nothing to prevent you from creating, from, from having the app essentially have a separate key and login and, and password information for each user. So that you could do. Um, and um, uh, yes, so, so that works nicely. And you could, you know, freely delete them if you're no longer using them. Uh, your kids might want to install their identity in your phone, again, for convenience sake. You would have no access to their identity because it would have the same level of protection as your own identity has to um, uh, against other people. So now, the other question that a lot of people had was uh, what if I want to surf? What if I want to log in on the phone that I have the squirrel uh, app running on? Yes. How do I do that? Um, a couple ways. First of all, it is it, in the worst case, it's normally possible for you to, to copy an image on a web page. So you, you know, you hold your finger down on the squirrel code 
and up comes a little dialogue saying copy. And so you say, yes, copy. Then you just simply go to the Squirrel uh, app and paste it into the Squirrel app and you're good to go. But the other cool possibility is for mobile users is that we could also do the same thing with the actual URL. Instead of showing the graphical squirrel code, mm, it could mm. just, if, if the site knows, if it sees from your user agent that you're using a mobile device, and it's obvious that sites are becoming aware of mobile devices, because I notice mine, you know, sites are recognizing that I'm on an iPad when I am, then it could still provide the squirrel code and would, but might also just have a link. That is, there would be a link, sqrl colon slash slash, and, and so the point is it would be a little button underneath it saying log on mobile. And so you simply click the button. And so that executes the device that's registered for SQRL colon um, uh, you, uh, flavor URLs, which essentially fires up your squirrel logon, presents you with a screen saying, is this the site you want to authenticate to? And you say, yep, and off you go. And, and then, then back you are. And then back you are, essentially where you were, but now securely authenticated. Because that QR code is really just a string of of data represented yes, as a QR code. So there's no reason you can't represent it as a string of ASCII characters, right? Exactly. In fact, it, it, the, the, the QR code that we were talking about for your master key, that's all binary on, on a predefined format. But yes, the, the QR code on a web page is just text. There, that, 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 That's an existing standard. If you go to a website or if you Google QR code generator, you'll get pages of QR code generators. There, there's a bunch of nice ones. And you can put in, you, you can put in HTTPS colon slash slash www.amazon.com slash SQRL question mark. And then, and then like a bunch of nonce sort of stuff and see what a QR code looks like. It's just a standard URL but the the beauty of it being a QR code is that it's you know it essentially jumps off the page into your phone optically you know just that easily which was you know part of what I what hit me that morning during breakfast was wait a minute uh, yeah this seems like it could work and so now, so imagine the experience I mean now you, I mean this is I want one of this uh, one of these things it's just it's my phone is able to assert my identity in a secure fashion to every site I visit. And what I would do is, over time, as sites began to support this, and again, it's it's low friction. They leave their existing logon there. They simply add the QR code over time. Users add uh, SQRL apps to their smartphones and begin using it. And so, for example, if, say, the first time I went to Amazon, I might snap the QR code, which I notice has finally appeared on Amazon, and Amazon would take me to a page saying, hi there, um, we don't know who you are yet. If you are an existing Amazon user, please provide your traditional logon so we can associate this, you know, your, your, your squirrel identity with your Amazon account. And so I do that one last time, and from now on, wherever I am, it knows Amazon knows me. Now, one of the reasons, and we keep saying phone, but really we're just talking about a device with a camera and an internet connection, essentially, yes. right? Because uh, an iPod Touch would be able to do this if it's connected to Wi-Fi. No an iPad. Yeah, an iPad could do this. Um, what, 
what, and, and if I feel like one of the reasons you're saying have it on that device is that way you only have the one device that can authenticate you. And so you don't store it on a bunch of, of other devices unless you really want to, but you're, you're sort well, of you're, you're distributing on, your risk, right? Leo, Leo would have it on all of his phones. And it would be safe because it's deeply encrypted and protected. And so there really is, I mean, for convenience, I would think you'd want to have it on whatever you have with you. So, yeah, having it on one phone is, is good, but ha having it on all of your mobile devices, uh, that could work too. Well, then a few people were saying, and, you know, curmudgeons, admittedly, probably yeah. a minority, but saying, I don't have a smartphone. I don't want a phone with a camera or even my workplace won't allow me to have a phone with a camera, which still happens sometimes. And they're suggesting, can I have this app on my laptop and use it the way you're saying you could use it on the device itself? So the laptop any, is your device. I, yeah, I don't see any reason why not. I, th this could be done as a plug-in so yeah. that... So that you know, it, so that the the plugin sees the SQRL code and performs the handshake for you and identifies you. So it really has so many more uses then. Suddenly, and right? actually, it, the plugin has an advantage too that it could it it could for you verify that the domain of the SQRL code matches the domain of the URL of the page. So it, it, it could eliminate that, that extra step that we have in the phone to verify that the QR code, which we're not able to read ourselves, you know, it looks like gibberish. So the phone decrypts that so we can see the URL that we're who, to, to where we're going to send our authentication information. A, a, a browser plugin could do that for you. That's incredibly useful. Now, your laptop doesn't even have to have a camera at that point, or at least the one that you're going to trust. Of course, don't lose that laptop, or you're going to have to go get your code out of the safety deposit box and and, uh, and go through that. But right. uh, I, I'm sure that, that you still want people to to poke holes at this if they can. I know you've done a lot of bullet testing on it. Um, what what do you want people to do with this next? Well, okay, so I just had to. You know, tell the world. We have a lot of listeners uh, all over the place. Everybody knows about it now. There are pages up where I've got block diagrams and careful descriptions. I think I've got three and like a quarter <laughs> of maybe 10 pages finished. So the core pages, basically, Tom, what I showed you yesterday, so, right. so that, you know, you would know what this podcast was about. That's all done. Anyone who reads those three pages will completely get it. Um, I'm working on the attacks page where I want to document all the different attacks that we know of, like brute force password attacks and and like like DNS spoofing attacks. You know, is there any vulnerability there and so forth? Um, I also want an implementation page. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'd love to get back to Spinrite. Frankly, I've done my <laughs> job here. Yeah, yeah. But but if there's anything I can do by being some focus for this, I'm certainly willing to do it. Um, what, if, if, if people like the idea, then we'd like to have SQRL apps created. Um, but we'd also want to guarantee interoperability. So that means that we need to define the protocol by which the, the, the Squirrel app 
contacts the website. So we need, we need you know, interoperability, essentially standards. We need some standards to be created around the concept so we don't end up being fragmented. Because that, that would kill it quickly. Um, and uh, I did just create a new news group at GRC. I do it very infrequently. It's been years. But there is now grc.sqrl is the news group at the at the on on the on GRC's NNTP news group server. I haven't looked there, but I'll bet it's already active, knowing that the, the people that are hanging out there. Um, so that's really going to be our central focus. I do have a feedback page among those SQRL pages on GRC. Essentially, if you go under research and then recent, and then you'll see SQRL secure QR login. That'll take you to the introduction page. At the bottom is a, is a block of links. And I do have a feedback page, as I always do for these things, where anybody can essentially send feedback directly to me. I'm, I would, I'm, I'm interested in what anyone has to say, but for you know, extensive dialogue and conversation, it'd be much better to participate in GRC's uh, news groups uh, where we've got a bunch of really great people working on this stuff. And that's just grc.sqrl, right, for the news group? Yes, is the news group, grc.sqrl. And I actually have a link to that on the feedback page because we have a web browser interface, which is read-only to the news groups, so you could just see what's going on easily. Um, and we're old-school NNTP news server. You know, yeah. we don't have a... We don't have a web forum, so you need to use something like Thunderbird or I, I, I'm still using Gravity on Windows, which is my favorite. There's nice. one called News Tap for iOS that I like and I use on my on my iPad. Uh, that works great. Um, uh, and then, yeah, that's we, we have a really, really great group of people who are working. And, of course, I'm sure that uh, I'll talk about this next week with Leo. We'll see what's happened in a week. Uh, I'm going to try to get these pages finished, and yeah. then we'll sort of see how it goes. But that's what this is. This, you know, so far, after a bunch of crypto-savvy guys have looked at this over the weekend, uh, we made some improvements and changes to my original concept, uh, you know, better understood the nature of attacks, um, and it's still standing. And... You know, I wish this existed. I this is how this is how I would log in and use my authentication across the internet. Uh, it's just got a huge number of benefits. Absolutely. I mean, it basically makes what I do now a whole lot simpler. So if I can have an extension on the laptop that I use and trust, right? That's better than LastPass because yes. it's, it's the same as LastPass. It's an extension, but it has so much more to it. And then I've got an app on my phone for when I'm on a computer that I don't trust. Yep. And that's the same as having that Google Authenticator app that I have, except, again, it does so much more and makes it so much easier. Uh, I, I'm really pleased with this. The other reason I, that I'm pleased with this and excited about it, Steve, is the chat room, as they always do, is going to take pot shots at this all the way through. And between me and, and Sparky Man was in there uh, answering questions as well. I don't oh, think there was a single objection that, that was brought up that we didn't have, yes, he's thought of that. Yes, he's getting to that. It's at this part in the documentation. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> I, just, I, think it's, I think it works. Yeah. It's, it's, I, think, I think people will be going, oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, this works. The only surprise I had was two people who said, 
I had a very similar idea that I pitched to X company and they said, sounds great, but it's not in our strategy right now. Mm. I can't. Yeah, well, I see, and, and, that, and that's just it. This is not something someone can own. I, one of the items I have on the first page down low, down toward the end is, did I invent something? And I answer my own question and, that's a, and I say, I don't care. I yeah. mean, arguably, I'm sure there are people who say, oh, you know, you, you know, you need to get intellectual pro property protection on this. I have uh, formally and officially said here, this is an idea. It was a good cup of coffee that I had that morning. Uh, I want that cup of coffee. <laughs> you know, let's, let, let's see if the world wants to run with it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this is great. And, uh, and, and like you say, even if similar ideas have been floated before, they don't exist. And what you're pushing for is let's make this happen. Let's make this exist. Here, here's here's an architecture, and you've you've bullet tested it. That doesn't mean it's, it's done. It's, but it's it's why it being so low friction matters. I think yes. when I say you know when I say low friction, I mean that it is so much better from the user's experience that there will be push for it. It is so simple architecturally that a, a single guy who writes mobile web apps or, or mobile apps can implement it. Um, I didn't talk about the crypto, it, but of all the crypto is is there. I use uh, Dan Bernstein's, it's called Curve 25519. It's an elliptic curve crypto. Notice that one of the requirements of this is that you be able to have a pseudo random generated private key. That's different than RSA, where you mm. use a pair of primes and you, you, you use the product of a pair of primes. There's no way to deterministically arrive at those from the hash function. So one of the enabling features that I didn't talk about specifically, it's all documented already on those three pages, is that the output of that HMAC secure hash function is this 512-bit pseudo-random number that's your private key. So we need cryptography, which is able to accept any pseudo-random number as a private key and compute the public key and then sign something under the private key. And all of that's been worked out too. There's existing uh, code, all public domain in source for all, every single piece of this. So basically all of this is already open source public domain technology. We just got to glue it together. Well, this is fantastic. And folks should go check this out at grrc.com slash SQRL if you're you're interested as as you put actually, up actually, all the pages. Two, two SQRLs slash SQRL slash SQRL. HTM. I wanted to give that. I wanted to give it its own directory to live in. Gotcha. So, so SQRL slash SQRL .htm, You're right. Uh, of course, you're right. But I, I'm just like <laughs> I just tried it and got a page not found the way I did it. So yes, grc.com slash SQRL slash SQRL .htm. No L. And uh, and and take a look at it. Go to that feedback page if you want information on how you can further investigate this, implement this. There's certainly lots of other stuff going on with QR code. Uh, somebody just put a link to an old Verge article from this summer about Google messing around with QR codes for security. Uh, as Steve said, this is not. That's not the point. The point of this is all of this stuff, as Steve just mentioned, is already available, free and open source. It's just putting it together. Uh, and making it work, and hopefully some patent squatter doesn't try to come along and claim 
they invented it. That, but that's I, always a risk I, with anything you do on the internet. I did look at what Google had done because, of course, when I came up with this, I thought, wait a minute, how can nobody have thought of right, this before? Right, right. Uh -huh. and, and so I, I spent a couple of days really looking hard. What Google did was they had an interesting idea, not this one at all. Their idea was they would present, provide a QR code. You would then snap that with your phone and the login would jump off, essentially off the page onto your phone. So it was a way of like transporting the the standard login oh, over yeah. to your phone. And then you do the same thing you normally did. It's like, well, okay, I'm not sure why that's better. And then, of course, yeah. it, it wasn't and it died. That's just borrowing the system they use for Chromecast to send video links, which don't necessarily need to be secure, uh, back right. and forth, and just sending the login URL. That's that's different. GRC.com also uh, for SpinWrite. Uh, for all the other freeware and services and research and everything uh, that you do. I mean, this this is the thing that, that you've been up to. Is there anything else to mention before we take off? No, I'm sure I'll be focused on this until I get back to working on the next version of SpinWrite. And, and I should mention that since SQRL is not an often occurring string, I would I would bet that a week from now you just put it into Google and you'll probably be able to find GRC's pages. So I think it'll, it'll take you right there. Excellent. Thank you, Steve, uh, as always for, for the show and for the great information and for doing this. Uh, I think this is fantastic. Well, let's hope it happens. I, I, I will, I want it for myself. I think it would be a, a great step forward. Twit.tv slash SN. If you want to get the show notes and all of that stuff as well at GRC.com for all the great work Steve does. Thanks, everybody. And, and Steve, once again, thanks for uh, allowing me to fill in for Leo. It's been great fun these past three weeks. Really cool. Has been. And it works so well that I'm sure Leo will feel free to take a vacation again. I'm sure he will. <laughs> thanks, everybody. We'll see you later. Security.